And please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through Ephesians, looking at chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Last Sunday, we looked closely at verses 1, 2, and 3. And if you, if you missed that sermon, then it, it may be worth going back, listening to it again, because the, uh, the opening three verses of Ephesians 2 make plain who we all once were before God saved us in Christ by his grace. And we don't have time to go back today and look at verses 1, 2, and 3, but here's the summary. Paul makes it very plain that, that we were once all spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. All once spiritually dead, not, not merely sick, but spiritually dead, spiritually lifeless, spiritually flatlined. Paul also says that we were at one time enslaved, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and therefore we stood condemned. The actual phrase he uses in Ephesians 2 is that we were, by nature, children of wrath. And so we were all once dead, enslaved, condemned because of the, the utterly terrible reality of sin. But then, for all who trust in Christ, God saved us by his grace through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of Jesus Christ. And our passage today focuses on this glorious salvation, as Paul writes, was brought about by the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll read Ephesians 2, uh, verses 4 to 7. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at uh, these verses uh, with two headings. And similar to last week, uh, each heading only has, has two words. In fact, the, the last heading, the second heading last week is the first heading for this week. Because we are looking at a couple of the verses again. And so our two headings today are, but God... And the second is with Christ, but God with Christ. And so first, but God, and look with me at verses four and five, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And so we, we ended with these two verses last week, but you may remember it was a, we, we quickly kind of flew through them. And so I, I want us to look at them just a little bit more. And as we look at verses four and five, it's imperative that we remember what Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians 2. And, and you heard me summarize before the reading of, of the scripture, but we were once all dead enslaved, condemned because of the utterly terrible reality of sin. However, after Paul made that point about the, how terrible sin is, how, how dire of a situation it is, how we're dead, enslaved, condemned, after he makes that point in verses 1, 2, and 3, 
Look at what, look at what he doesn't give us in verse 4. He doesn't give us a list of imperatives, commands, exhortations. I mean, look at verses 4 and 5. He, there's no exhortation. Okay, after you've heard about sin, heard about how we're dead in sin, enslaved and condemned, there's no exhortation, okay, to now take your sin seriously so that you will no longer be dead in your sin. There's no exhortation to, um, to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and, and stop doing this and start doing this so that you will no longer be spiritually dead, you'll no longer be enslaved, so that you'll no longer be condemned in your sin. Right? We don't see any of that in verses 4 and 5. Why not? Before God saved us by his grace in Christ, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people can't follow instructions. Dead people cannot revive themselves. Spiritually dead people cannot save themselves by working harder, trying harder, turning over a new leaf. Spiritually dead people cannot save themselves by their good works. That's why Paul doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts, beginning in verse 4, with the hope that if we do them well enough and work hard enough or long enough, then maybe we can earn God's forgiveness. We were spiritually dead. Before God saved us by his grace in Christ, you know, we, we were dead, just like Jesus' friend Lazarus in John 11 was dead. Okay, do you guys remember, you guys, have you guys ever heard of the Gospel of John? Okay, do you guys ever spend any time there in the Gospel of John? Remember Lazarus, Jesus' friend, the brother of, of Mary and Martha? And while Jesus was away, Lazarus fell ill and he died. And he had been buried in the tomb for four days whenever Jesus arrived at his tomb. And do you remember what Jesus did when he made it back to Lazarus' tomb? Or, or maybe better yet, do you remember what Jesus did not do when he got there? Here's what he didn't do. Jesus didn't come outside the, the tent and then set up a chair and decide, okay, I'm going to wait for Lazarus to wake up. I'm going to wait for him to change. I'm going to wait for him to act. I'm going to wait for him to do something. Right, but that's not what Jesus did. Why not? Because Lazarus was dead. That Jesus had to raise Lazarus to new life before Lazarus could or would do anything. And so with this in mind, look again at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look at those first two words, but God. We looked at them last week. Richard Colquitt mentioned them in his prayer. I mean, look at them again now. But God. And remember that quote that I shared last week from David Martin Lloyd-Jones. These two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, right? But God, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and astonishing work of God. You know, as many pastors and scholars have pointed out, but God are two of the greatest words in the whole Bible. That God made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. Right? Whenever we were lost, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, but God. 
emphasizing that our salvation is an act of God. An act of God, but God. As Paul will later say in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, put simply, you cannot, I cannot, we cannot take credit for even an ounce of our salvation. You know, we, we will revisit this next week, but even your faith is a gift of God. Our salvation is a work of God from first to last. I mean, do you know that? Do you believe that? Henry Ironside puts it this way. I think this is helpful. It's as if he knows us. He knows his own heart. By grace you have been saved, and grace precludes all thought of merit. We were not saved because we prayed so earnestly, repented so bitterly, turned over a new leaf, made restitution for past sins, tried to do good, kept the law, and obeyed the Sermon on the Mount, or anything else that we could. But we were saved by grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor to those who merited the opposite. You know, but God made us alive together with Christ, even we were dead in our trespasses. For it is by grace you have been saved. Now, there's one more thing before we move to the second heading. I asked you this last week at the end of the sermon, but that was a long sermon, so I don't know if it was lost on you or not. But, dear Christian, looking at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, why did God save you? Listen again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I mean, do you see? It was because of the richness of his mercy, the greatness of his love, and the depth of his grace for sinners like us. You know, I pointed this out last Sunday, but do you see the redundancy at the end of verse 4? Because of the great love with which he loved us. He loved us with this great love. Why did God save you whenever you were dead, enslaved, and condemned in your trespasses and sins? It's because he loved you with his love. That's why he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so as you look at verses 4 and 5, know that that means there is no one in this sanctuary who is a lost cause. There's no one in here who is too far gone. It doesn't matter what your past is like. It doesn't matter what your present is like. Trust in Christ. He is the Savior you need. You cry out to God for the forgiveness that Christ purchased with his death on the cross. You cry out to God to, to credit you with Christ's righteousness. You cry out to God to, to raise you to new life, new spiritual life this resurrection power, and God will do this. He'll forgive you. He'll give you a new heart. You'll be born again. He'll give you a new power for living. So, but God, that's our first heading. The second now is with Christ, and this is where we'll spend the, the rest of our time, with Christ, but let me introduce this heading. We'll, we'll go back to the text very soon, I promise, but let me introduce this heading because 
This is, you know, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 10, I mean, it's an incredible passage. I mean, it, it's, it's very well known. My guess is that most of us were familiar with it. Even last week, whenever I, you know, we turned the page to Ephesians 2, we're familiar with it. I, I teach it each and every new members class. However, my concern is, is that we, we, we know the beginning of it, verses 1, 2, and 3, well. Those are hard verses. Okay, and we read the, the wonderful good news, but God, in verses 4 and 5. And then, and then we're familiar with the proof text about uh, salvation, not by works, but by grace at the end in verses 8 and 9. But then in the middle, that verses 6 and 7, that last part of verse 5, 6, and 7, we, we, don't, we tend to skip past. And the reason why is because I think too many pastors rush through them. They rush through Ephesians 2, verses 5, 6, and 7 as if... Paul is merely using flowery or poetic language. However, this passage, this passage is packed with life-changing, life-changing doctrine. Life-changing doctrine that, that, that is, it's not dry, it's not distracting, it's not divisive. Life-changing doctrine that is intended to, if we understand it correctly, to lead to doxology. So let's try to understand this. A, a Scottish pastor from the 19th century named Hugh Martin, he wrote that Christianity can be summed up in, in two phrases. Christ for us and we with Christ. Christ for us and we with Christ. And so Christ for us is essentially what we've been looking at the past two Sundays. and It's what I hope you hear preached Sunday after Sunday from this pulpit. It's that sinners like us are only saved from our sins because of what God has done for us in Christ. That God saves us, Christ saves us by his life, death, and resurrection. Or as Richard Phillips explains, the New Testament proclaims this over and over. Christ was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us. He died for us. He rose from the grave for us. He ascended into heaven and rules in power for us, everything Jesus did, he did for us that we might be saved. Okay, Christ for us. That Christ for us refers to redemption accomplished for us. However, remember, the phrase Christ for us is to be joined together with the phrase we with Christ. We with Christ. And so Christ for us refers to redemption accomplished by Christ for us. Well, we with Christ or the biblical doctrine of the Christian's union with Christ refers to redemption applied to us. Redemption applied to us. We with Christ, union with Christ. And so listen to a couple of quotes. First, John Murray says, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. A.W. Pink says, the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in sacred scripture. However, I am sad to say there is hardly any subject which is now more generally neglected. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. Okay, so let us try to understand it. And our larger catechism is very helpful here. Question 66 asks, what is the union which the elect have with Christ? We with Christ. Here's the answer. The union which the elect have with Christ 
is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Now, I want you to notice that the very first proof text for the larger catechism, question 66, is none other than our text, Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. See, the Christian's union with Christ is a covenant union, that we're spiritually joined to Christ as our covenant head, and when we trust in Christ, we become the beneficiaries of all that Christ did, that our sins really are credited to Christ. And they really are fully paid for on Calvary's cross. And Christ's righteousness really is credited to us. All of this is contained in union with Christ. And Paul is going to teach us about our union with Christ in verses 5, 6, and 7 using three expressions. Three expressions um, which they appear to be uh, contain three words that he coined, that Paul made up in verses 5 and 6. See, Paul takes the Greek prefix that means together with, and he combines it with three verbs. He takes together with and combines it with make alive. Takes together with and combines it with raise up. He takes together with and and combines it with sit down. Therefore, the three expressions Paul uses to help us understand our union with Christ are made us alive together with Christ in verse 5 raised us up with him in verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in verse 6. Or as one commentator put it, God co-made us alive with Christ, co-raised us up with him, and co-seated us with him. And so, one more quote before we get into this text. Ian Hamilton says, The union of believers with Christ is so intimate that what happened to him happened to them. What happened to Christ happened to you, dear believer. The three phrases, made us alive, raised us up, and made us sit, are all in the past tense. This is what God, through the gospel of his grace, has done for every believer in Christ. And so let's look at each of these three phrases. First, God made us alive together with Christ. So look look at Ephesians 2, verse 5. Even we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So we were dead in our trespasses and sin. However, just as God raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter morning, God has made us spiritually alive together with Christ. You see, the resurrection is not merely an event that we believe happened. Do you see what this says? The resurrection is an event in which we shared. In the resurrection, Christ rose from the grave in triumph over sin, death, and hell. And Paul's point here in Ephesians 2 is that we, believers in Christ, you, believer in Christ, triumphed together with our risen Lord and Savior. You see, dear Christian, whenever you were saved by God's grace, you experienced spiritual resurrection. That your, your conversion was as radical as resurrection from the dead. And the the theological term for this is regeneration. Regeneration, you were born again, made anew, passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. Okay, so put another way, this means you were forgiven and pardoned from your sins. However, it means more. 
It means that salvation in Christ is far more than merely forgiveness of sins, although that's huge. You see, whenever we trust in Christ, yes, our sins are forgiven. They're washed away by the shed blood of Christ. However, there's more. That we're not only forgiven and washed clean, but we're also clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that's how God sees us. Jesus' perfect life and righteous record is credited to us. However, there's more. That we are raised to new life. Sinclair Ferguson says, salvation thus involves both pardon for our sins and new life. One without the other would not be the complete good news we really need. But now, united to Christ, we have been raised up from spiritual death. So we see the kingdom. We love his word and we experience life in God's family. You see, Christianity is not about merely becoming a nicer person. Christianity is about becoming a new person, God making you new. So look again at Ephesians 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We are now made alive together with Christ. So John Stott used the illustration of, of thinking of your life you know, as a biography uh, written in two volumes, two books. And so book one is the story of the old you before Christ saved you, the old you, the old woman, the old man, the old self, dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, that's book one. And the point that Paul's making here in Ephesians 2, dear Christian, is that book one is now It's now closed. It's now closed. That's not your story anymore. Book one is closed. It's it's done. It's never to be opened again. That's not who you are anymore. The old you was spiritually dead and enslaved to your sin, but that's not who you are now. That God has made you alive together with Christ. That you've been raised to newness of life. That you're now living in book two. So let me ask you, friends, have you closed the cover of book one? You don't need to keep going back there. You really don't. There's nothing for you there anymore. You've heard me say it many times. Sin never takes you where you want to go. It never makes things better. And it always costs you way more than you expected to pay. You are no longer who you once were. Your old life has ended. So be who you are now in Christ. You are able, we are able to live a new life in Christ. We're united to Christ by faith. We've been made alive together with him. He's put the Holy Spirit within us, and the Spirit enables us to die more and more into sin and to live more and more into righteousness. So first, we've been made alive together with Christ. Second, Paul says that God raised us up with Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 6. And raised us up with him. So first, Paul was speaking of Christ's resurrection from the grave. Now, Paul's referring to Jesus' ascension into heaven. And here we see that we have been raised up with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. Ascended with him. 
John Calvin says, it's as if we had been brought from the deepest hell, spiritually dead, enslaved and condemned in our sins, to heaven itself. And if you're a Christian, then yes, you are obviously still physically in this room, okay? You're still physically in this world, but you are no longer of this world. You now have new citizenship, new status. You now have a new home. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, to try to help us understand this, let me use an illustration. Um, I I don't know if people still use business cards or not. Um, I don't know if they're still a thing. I I think I have about 5,000 business cards in my desk that that still say Richard Harris, director of single adults from about 14 years ago. So I think I still have those. Um, But thinking about business cards, it's as if we have on our card both our home address and our business address. And for the Christian, heaven is your home. In this world is merely your temporary place of business. Just for right now. This means that the more we live into the glorious reality of our union with Christ, then the less our focus will be on the the imminent frame before us. What we can see and taste and touch and put our hands on and stuff our pockets with and fill our mouths with. And the less we will live for those things, the less we will live for worldly riches and glory and pleasure. Because the more we lift the gaze of our hearts up to our true home in heaven, the more we will be captivated by the comforting truth of our heavenly inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. It's safe and it's secure in Christ. My guess is that we've all heard that expression, right? You know, that, that guy, that gal, that person is just, they're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Have you heard that before? Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Well, my experience says that's completely backwards. It's completely backwards. It's the heavenly minded people who know where their true home is who are the most good, the most useful. They're the most content. They're the most joyful. They're the most loving. They're the most generous. They're the most giving of their time, talent, and treasure to kingdom purposes here on earth. And so what about you? How heavenly minded are you? How often are you living here in the now, in the present, in light of eternity? If if you're honest, and let's be honest, Are you living as one who is a citizen of heaven now? The old pastor, J.C. Weil, puts it this way, and this is is an encouragement and a challenge for us. Let us not be afraid to meditate often on the subject of heaven and to rejoice in the prospect of good things to come. I know that even a believer's heart will sometimes fail when he thinks of the last enemy, which is death, and the unseen world beyond, But let us take comfort. Think, Christian believer, of seeing your Savior, beholding your King and His beauty. Faith will at last be swallowed up in sight and hope in certainty. 
You are not going to a foreign country. You are going home. You are not going to dwell among strangers, but among friends, but among family. So he's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him. And then thirdly, God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So look at the end of verse 6. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul's already referred to Christ's resurrection, his ascension. Now he refers to his exaltation, the exaltation of our risen Lord to being seated at God the Father's right hand in heaven. Okay, and think about this, that we have been, we're seated there with him. Seated there with him. I mean, think about the movement from from Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, dead, enslaved, condemned, to now being seated there with Christ in the heavenly places? Are you kidding me? It's amazing. And listen how Richard Phillips explains this. In Christ... We are no longer condemned, but are seated with him in the presence of God. The opposite of condemnation and judgment is not merely acquittal or forgiveness. As great as acquittal and forgiveness are, we aspire to too little if we think that forgiveness is all we want from God. The opposite of condemnation is acceptance into God's inner circle. Adoption into his family and embrace close to his side, to be seated at his right hand together with Christ. I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, what do you make of this incredible thought that you, through your spiritual union with Christ, we with Christ, are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus? What do you make of this? I mean, I know it can be hard for us to to wrap our minds, our heads, and our hearts around, but, but let's try to do that. This is what God's word says, that you see Jesus sitting down at at the right hand of God the Father is a sign of his total victory over Satan's sin and death itself. See, dear Christian, and you're seated with him. It's a sign of his total victory. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Christians still sin. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about Being a Pharisee, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about works righteousness. Christians still sin. I still sin. You still sin. But the world, the flesh, and the devil no longer rule over us. We're not enslaved to them anymore. You know, book book one is closed. It's closed, put away. There's no reason to go back there. That's not who we are anymore. We're now living in book two. We don't have to go back to book one ever again. Also, Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father also means, dear Christian, that you have full assurance. You have full assurance of your salvation in Christ. You're not going to lose that. No one is going to snatch you from his hand. Remember what Paul wrote in, in Romans 8, beginning of verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And listen to what it says. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
He goes on to give the answer in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about this. Think about the incredible movement from verses 1, 2, and 3 to now verses 4, 5, and 6. Think about the contrast. Think about the reversal. See, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive together with Christ. That we, we were slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God liberated us and raised us up with Christ, and our home is now in heaven. That we once stood condemned before a holy God, but God has seated us with Christ at God's the Father's right hand as his adopted children in loving fellowship with full assurance of eternal life. Now, I know it's possible for some of us, some of us in this sanctuary to find it easier to believe Ephesians 2 verses 1, 2, and 3 than we do to believe Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and 6. And perhaps you're someone who would ask, but Richard, why would God do all of this for me? Why would God do all of this for a sinner like me? And I'm glad, I'm glad you asked because Paul gives us the answer in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he, God the Father, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you see the answer? Do you see why God would save a sinner like me? Do you see why God would save a sinner like you? There's really a twofold answer. It's both because of his mercy, love, grace, and kindness towards sinners like us, and it's because saving sinners like us shows forth God's glory. And those two things are not at odds. God's glory and our joy, God's glory and our blessing are not at odds. If you came through the main entrance of the church, you saw that today, right? The Shorter Catechism, question one asks, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's glory and our joy, God's glory and our blessing in Christ, they're not at odds. They're not at odds at all. And so here in Ephesians 2, 7, we see that the blessing of our salvation in Christ is for the display of God's glory. Look at the text. That in the coming ages, in the coming ages, another way of saying for all eternity, God might show or put on full display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The amazing thing about God's grace is that God makes us trophies of his grace. <laughs> now think about this. Think about, think about the last time you were in a jewelry store. Some of you are like, oh, that was yesterday. That was a Saturday. No. 
How do jewelers show off the brilliance of their diamonds? They use the darkest of backgrounds. Against the darkest background of our sin, the immeasurable riches of God's grace are put on full display in our salvation. That we are to be brilliant trophies of God's grace. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that's true for you, dear believer? Listen to how We'll come back to this thought next week, but listen to how John Owen puts it. God's purpose was to raise sinners to an inconceivably better condition than they were in before sin entered the world. God now appears more glorious than he ever did before. Now he is seen to be a God who pardons iniquity and sin and who is infinitely rich in grace. To save sinners through believing will be seen to be a far more wonderful work than to create the world out of nothing. To make sinners like us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions is a far more wonderful work than to create the world out of nothing. That we are trophies of God's grace to the praise of his glory. You see, friends, you know, this, this text, this passage, this sermon has been filled with a lot of doctrine because this text is full of a lot of doctrine. Never ever believe that doctrine is dry, distracting, or even divisive. Do you not see that doctrine rightfully preached and rightfully understand it's anything but dry, distracting, and divisive? See, doctrine is meant to lead to doxology to doxology, to to praise. That's where Paul takes us. That's where he takes us. So listen again to Ephesians 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Trophies of God's grace. Shining forth, putting on display his glory for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we, we pray that this, that this text would, would convict us in ways it needs to convict us, to leave behind book one and to, to press into living in light of book two, who we are now, who, who you have made us to be whenever you made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Father, please, by your grace, help us Enable us by your spirit to think, to think well, to think rightly about our, our citizenship, about our home in heaven. And may we live in light of that truth in the here and the now. And yet, Father, please, let this glorious doctrine here in this passage 
move us to doxology, move us to praise and worship and adoration and comfort and assurance in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.